the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Yes, it is. And welcome back. Brandon J. Warker joins us every Monday and sometimes more than every Monday. But he is the <laughs> author of Winning Space, How America Remains a Superpower. He is the publisher of the Weikert Report. Uh, W-E-I-C-H-E-R-T is how he spells his name. The Weikert Report. .com, a columnist for the Asia Times and so many other places. Uh, Brandon, uh, thank you for uh, rejoining us today. Uh, your contributions last week, um, boy, I got a lot of great feedback, all of it great. Uh, you have just oh, been on great. fire. Thank you for being with us and lending us your brain. Well, well, thank you for having me. Unfortunately, the only time people want to talk to me is when the world is on fire. So I, know. I guess that's good for my, good for my career, but uh, unfortunately, it's sad that people have to suffer for that. Um, but uh, thank you for the kind words, and uh, it's it's good to be back. And uh, you know, let's hope that the situation in Ukraine can be resolved sooner rather than later for everyone. You know, I, it's an odd thing in your profession, uh, and I think <laughs> you're not alone about this. I I, I remember, I, you know, after I did several interviews with a guy who wrote for the Jerusalem Post some years ago, I said, you know, you're just so nice. I wish I didn't have to only call you when there was a crisis. <laughs> But it dawns on me, you guys, you know, this is the business you're in. There are no better yeah. crisis managers than analysts of uh, such as yourself, to be honest with you. And well, you. Uh, you bet. And and I'll tell you something else. Um, it's um, it's unfortunate, but it's still true what Daniel Patrick Moynihan said. It's a dangerous world. He said it in the 70s. It hasn't ever yep. gotten less dangerous. We've had you know, higher levels and lower levels of kinetic activity. But it's there, there are always going to be a need for you, Brandon. There's always going to be well, a need for you. So I will always call you, as I will well, always love you. you. I will always Dolly pick Parton. up. Yes, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, sir. So many questions you. for you. I'm not sure yeah. where to start, except I will. Yeah, I am sure where to start. I will start here. And I think it has to do, yeah, has to do with your most uh, uh, recent column at the Asia Times, uh, yeah, Russia ready to break you. Can't, yeah. yeah. So we've been hearing a lot over the last few days, uh, Brandon, about Ukraine standing up a little better than people thought. Uh, Russia not uh, swarming um, the, uh, uh, shall I say, swallowing the field, flooding the zone the way people thought. That's what I was trying to say, um, that it's it seems like Russia's having a harder go of it. and Ukraine's having a better go of it than people estimated. Um, I have said, I mean, this has only been a thought over the last 48, 72 hours. I have said it's only 48 or 72 hours, right. thus presaging your column. Talk to me about this. Yeah, so basically, you know, we're all pulling for the Ukrainians. In fact, I'm helping right now my wife, her colleague from the hospital is currently, she's over in uh, Kiev sending these insane pictures uh, of what she's going through because her sister was dying of sepsis before the invasion began. And so she went over there to help her, and now she's stuck in the bunker right now. Uh, doesn't know if she's going to make it through the night. She has a 10-year-old son here and a husband uh, that we know, and so we're trying to help her. So, uh, you know, where I'm going with this is basically the, the, the West has understandably been rooting for Ukraine. Yeah. I have been, too. 
but as a professional, it's my job. And I've gotten a lot of flack from friends of ours, you know, on social media, big name, blue check observers of these things who I've called out for being way too emotional um, about about the Ukrainian cause in the sense that they are, I believe, um, surrendering their objectivity on the altar of public, you know, emotionalism of standing with the Ukrainians. I'd like uh, to talk said, a little bit about that. Yeah, I want. I, I, right, but, we can either we circle can. back or do it now. Either way, yeah, but yeah, can, I'm glad you brought that up. Yeah, I, it's kind of leading into my yeah, yeah. I want to come back is, to that. Okay, which is that basically it's been five days since Vladimir Putin yeah, invaded. Right, and we're talking like it's been 500 days right, or something. Right, and like it's you know the Ukrainians have performed brilliantly, um, but they performed as people like me, at least, who followed Ukraine for years, I expected after the amount of money we've given them and after the amount of training we've given them and after the amount of equipment that we've given them, I would hope that they would perform as good, if not better, especially considering this is their home. Yeah. And they should be commended for that, and we should be proud. And if you want to put your hashtag and your, your Ukraine flag profile picture on social media, go ahead. If you want to do what we just did and send some money to our friends, who's stuck in Ukraine, that's another thing you can do. But let's get real. We're talking about a nuclear superpower, basically, in Russia. Uh, it's right next door Ukraine is to Russia's power. Uh, they, they've had some difficulty, yes, but Russia traditionally has sloppy starts to their wars. Uh, and what we're oh, that's interesting. The U.S. doesn't start. and ends up collapsing often. Right. They start right. off slow and end up right. sticking around and, and yeah, yes. and interesting. There's, there's, a, there's, a guy on, um, there's a guy on Twitter who I've been communicating with, who's military uh, specialist. He's got a huge following. I think his name's Patrick Fox. And he's been talking about how the logistical supply chain issue is so bad. And I had to counter, because I usually agree with most of what he's been saying the last six weeks. But I said, look, I go... Go back to World War II. Russia traditionally has really shabby logistical supply issues during war, and yet most Russian military folks are really proud of the fact that despite their historical supply chain issues in war, they're somehow able to usually come out ahead. And that's because of the Russian style, which is to take their time. It's slow and plodding. They sort of mass their forces leisurely. They get where they want. They, they, they pick off the enemy when they need to, and yeah, the enemy's picking them off. But once they have their forces fully in place, they then drop the hammer. And suddenly, uh, the enemy that they're fighting, in this case the Ukrainians, which is mostly a light infantry force versus Russia's heavy infantry force, the Ukrainians might not be able to withstand that. You're already seeing, by the way, I'm getting reports from the front lines, people that are involved in the front lines, that are near the front lines, they're already experiencing ammunition shortages of the kind that we were fearing in the Ukraine side is. And so what I think Russia's been doing is, yes, they've had a slow start. Yes, Putin, I think, did miscalculate the level of resistance he experienced. They're also having issues with the weather. The snow melted sooner, it looks like, so the tanks have to use the roads and not the, the fields, which is causing issues because that makes it easier to target for the Ukrainians. But, but ultimately, uh, the, the Russians, I think, really, more than anything, are taking their time in order to probe. This is classic Russian recon and force. They're probing the Ukrainians. They're forcing the Ukrainians who have to always get it right every time. They're forcing the Ukrainians with their stretched supplies uh, to basically overreact, constantly be on the move, which is tiring the Ukrainian defenders. It's stretching their supplies. It's straining their, their ammo. And all in the meanwhile, 
The Russians just take their time and keep sending more forces, more forces. And by the way, the Russians have captured key territory. The Western media is talking like the Ukrainians have rebuffed the, 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 the Russians. It is true in Kharkiv. The, 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 it's a hot potato right now, the city. So how long will that last, considering the assets that, that Russia's moving in? And furthermore, again, key strategic territories, almost all of them have gone to the Russians. And so the Russians are taking their time. They're draining the, the Ukrainian resistance quotient. They're letting the Ukrainians get all of their, their fire and stuff out early. And then the Ukrainians look around going, we need ammo. The Americans and NATO are doing their best to meet that demand. The problem is there was a delay. We did not initially get to the level that we're getting until just recently in terms of American and NATO resupply. And by the way, the DOD is already complaining that there's a degraded environment. How reliable can U.S. and European supply chains into that degraded Ukrainian environment be if the ultimate goal is goal is for NATO to remain directly out of the fight? They want to be indirectly involved through supply. We don't want to have a situation where our supply runners for NATO or the U.S. who are trying to covertly get supplies en masse to a strained and stretched Ukrainian force are suddenly now under fire themselves. And there's no guarantee that the Russians will make a distinction between NATO or American supply runners going into Ukraine. No, they wouldn't. They would, yeah, right, exactly. No, and exactly. so, you yeah. know, this is not a good situation. We're, we're, we're prematurely celebrating victory. We should be celebrating the, the heroism of the Ukrainians, but we need to recognize that Putin's still got a lot of cards to play. He hasn't played his full card yet. This is what's known in the Russian, they call this the second echelon. The first echelon, mostly conscripts, and sort of these, these other forces they're using that may not be as strong, or may not be as talented. But now they're bringing that special, second echelon up in this convoy. And the, the, the convoy is big enough and secure enough where, yeah, the Ukrainians are going to harass it. They've got to. They've got to keep you know, picking them off. But it, they're not going to be enough. And once that convoy reaches its destination tonight, I fear it's going to start becoming in Kiev like Grozny was in Chechnya under Putin. Okay. And remember, ultimately... Chechnya did not go the way that Putin wanted it to go militarily. He got a political outcome out of it, which is why, similarly, I think Putin is opening up this diplomatic track with Zelensky, the leader of Ukraine. But Putin tried to take the capital of Chechnya, Grozny, lost like 100,000 people. It was a disaster, but he still bled the Chechnyans out. And let I me, let me pick up with you on that on the other side of the break. That is a great point to close on this one because it leads to a series of other questions. As I head to break... Let me put in a word for the Midas Gold Group, which is the veteran-owned sponsor of this show. You won't encounter pushy salespeople at Midas. They'll help you make an informed decision about precious metals and how they might fit into your portfolio. It is a great, as I say, veteran-owned Salem 960 AM dedicated gold dealer. Check them out at MidasGoldGroup.com. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show, coming to you live from the Guns Etc. studios. Brandon J. Weikert is our guest, as he is every Monday. He is the author of Winning Space, How America Remains a Superpower. Brandon, right before the break, you were giving us a nice uh, modern history lesson on on um, Putin and Russia's other uh, other advancements into other areas in years previous. Question for you. Uh, you described how they go in slowly, lumbering, uh, haltingly 
kind of figure out, get a lay of the land, kind of figure out what they got to do and what they're up against, let the enemy or the opposition exhaust themselves, and then they they come in uh, with uh, something like a full blitz after a spell. My question to you is this, Brandon. Um, when the United States contemplates going to war, you can predict 20 op-eds in major newspapers – uh, articles right. about body bags and body bag syndromes. Do they right. have those in Russia? In other words, is their concern about loss of life a little bit culturally different than ours? Are they are they are they willing to bleed a bit more than say the United States? I don't know if they're willing to. I think they have to. Okay. Um, the the the. I mean, we know that we know that Putin's war is very unpopular with a large section of the population. Uh, in Russia, it's just that we don't know exactly how unpopular because the media there is mostly controlled by Putin and his cronies, and they're not going to let those stories get out. So you're not going to see op-eds in most Russian media. You might in some of the opposition papers. You might have them in sort of these Russian-controlled expat, expatriate uh-huh. uh, uh, publications where they're not beholden to Moscow. But within Moscow and within Russia's you know, sphere of control, you're not going to really have that. Um, and there is still, though, I wouldn't say a majority, but a large number, maybe a near majority, of Russians who still are kind of okay with Putin uh, doing this because he makes them look good. Right. Or, you know, they, they want to be tough. I don't know if it's a majority. And I do know that Putin's security services, their secret police have been, uh, or their domestic security services have been operating at a high peak efficiency right now because... I mean, there's a group of Russian mothers of soldiers who, despite the fact they knew they would either be killed or arrested, went out in the last week and basically have been protesting the war. Don't send our sons to go die in Ukraine. Um, And so this is a big problem. And this is a big problem, by the way, I mentioned before the break, Chechnya. This is a big problem for Putin and Chechnya. If you remember, Putin was partly, he rose to power on this claim that he was going to make the Chechen rebels pay and that he was going to crush them in ways that Yeltsin never could, because Yeltsin was flabby and weak and democratic, and I'm not. Right. And what ended up happening was he, uh, Putin ended up getting caught in this quagmire, and he ended up having to end the war the way he did not want to, because the Russian mothers, the Russian people, did not were so tired of the death and the destruction. And even though the media wasn't really reporting it, People could physically go out and see the body bags being unloaded from the trains of the dead young men who went to war. And people were asking questions even at a local level, what the heck are we doing? Uh, and so I think something similar plays out in Russia today with Ukraine, particularly because there is a perception, uh, despite whatever tactical reality there may be, there is a political perception both outside of Russia, as we know, as well as inside of Russia, that the war has not unfolded precisely as was envisioned. That doesn't mean that Moscow's forces won't be able to adapt. I think they will. But what it means is that until the adaptation occurs and until it's very clear that the Russians have dominance over Ukraine, uh, there's going to be a lot of political pushback from within. Uh, There was a video that came out yesterday of Mr. Putin giving this bizarre speech in which uh, General Shoigu and uh, I think it was Gerasimov were in attendance. Everybody's like a thousand feet back. I from saw the that. Yeah, and I saw the way well, he sits at the table with these guys. Yeah, yeah, but if you look at the faces on Shoigu and Gerasimov, these are two very, very senior military leaders in Russia. 
In fact, the current Russia strategy is from 2013 is called the Gerasimov Doctrine. That's, oh, their, okay. that's, their, that's the, the adoption of Russia's asymmetrical warfare. Okay, so like a Petraeus uh, Doctrine here or something. Uh, okay, yes, okay, yes. Well, okay. yeah, probably a little bit more effective. Anyway, <laughs> I imagine uh, it was. <laughs> uh, but, but, okay. but anyway, but if you saw their faces, these are not men who are, you know, these are unflappable men. They're very, you know, Eurasian, steely. Uh, but they looked mortified by what Putin was saying. Because basically, the I think the implication was, if I'm maybe I'm reading into it, is that Putin's kind of detached from reality, and that's very dangerous. Because Putin, I think, is has gone for broke. Now, many of our allies, our friends in the media, people I write with, I'm not going to name names, were saying I was crazy a week ago, up until a week ago, when I was saying Putin's definitely going into Ukraine. He's not going to stop at Eastern Ukraine. And within 16 hours of being called every name in the book. Uh, you know, our friends had to kind of admit that I was right because I'm looking at Putin the man. Yep. And no, Putin they the always man, do. They, you know what I say? They always. Right. They always. Right. The price they for being right is appearing to be wrong at the time is is, right. is something you and I right. suffer from. And, Go ahead. And they, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and they can't help themselves. These tyrants, uh, you know, like Putin, because once he starts pushing forward with his forces, he's now made a major commitment of time, resources, and and blood, and he wants to look good. Especially now, because Russia isn't always doing that well economically or politically. So if he can show victory, then he's really boosted himself and his regime. So right now he's committed because right now he doesn't look good. The perception is bad, and he needs to change that perception no matter what. And so he's going to go as far as he has to. So I'm telling you right now, I I know people are saying he's definitely not going to attack Kiev. It's going to be more rational, more methodical. I think he's going to try to gut in the next 24 to 48 hours with a big military push, whether it's urban warfare or some kind of nasty siege. might be urban warfare because time's not on his side. I don't know if he can win this, but he's going to bleed Kiev, he's going to bleed Ukraine, and then he's going to stay just like he did in Gro- after Grozny in Chechnya. All right, Zelensky, I'm ready to negotiate. Let's go back to the status quo as it was before I invaded. I'm going to keep eastern Ukraine and Crimea. You get the rest. You don't join NATO and we'll be fine. But that's after he's flattened Ukraine's economy, the, the, you know, the physical destruction of Ukraine, the loss of life, the weakening of the Ukrainian military, which before the war was almost 200,000 strong, uh, the depletion of the resources there. So this is much more than just a simple you know, textbook military operation. This is a blood feud. It's a family matter. This is an inter-Slavic fight. You've got the Vatican warning that this could produce this conflict, multiple martyrs, because this is now a Catholic versus Eastern Orthodox Christian fight. So now you've got a big, big, big mess on your hand. And it's not just going to be this sort of sterile, you know, what the analysts, the professional analysts in D.C. are looking at it as, is this sort of logical and one goes to the next. This is going to be nonlinear. It's going to be nonsensical. It's not going to end tomorrow, and it's going to be extremely bloody. And for the people in Kiev, I'm very concerned because the next 72 hours, I think, are going to get very bloody, very nasty, very fast. Let me, you, you, I was going to ask you, you know, there is all this stuff floating around about the uh, sanity of Vladimir Putin. Yes. I was going to ask you about it and, and does it matter? You may have answered the follow-up, does it matter? Let me come back to you on sure. some a little bit of an analysis on it. Um, and also this other thing right in your wheelhouse, this very weird thing that is right behind us here, which is working with the Russians at the same time we're bad-mouthing them and sanctioning them, but Russian leadership – on getting a deal with Iran. I want to talk to you about all of that when we come back, Brandon J. Weikert, 
800-516-0960 is our number. Let me put in a word for our sponsor, Balance of Nature. I take it every day, 15 whole vegetables, 16 whole fruits in the vegeta- one daily dose of their vegetarian capsules, which are easy to swallow. But if you don't, they're just as easy to open up and put in food or drink. They've kept me well for three years. The power of nature in every capsule. Take it every day. Balanceofnature.com, discount code BALANCE. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. Brandon J. Weikert is our guest, columnist for the Asia Times, uh, pub, uh, publisher of the Weikert Report, author of Winning Space. Brandon, there has been a bunch of talk about um, whether Vladimir Putin has gone mad. There's a lot of theories flying around, isolation throughout COVID, uh, not wanting to talk to anyone who might disagree with him, kind of hold up in his home, not going out and about. Your sense of it, it, you know, it's hard to know. I mean, it's impossible maybe to know for certain. But also, does it matter? Does it matter? And you kind of spoke a little bit about the second part, but go ahead and take it as a whole question. Well, I do think that he's a little bit more um, risky risky or uh, willing to take risks. Less risk averse, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Uh, and I think that might come with his age. I think that might also come with some of what you're talking about with the isolation. I don't know. Uh, we did see this, like I said, though, at the start of his presidency in the late 90s, early 2000s, with, again, the Chechnya example, uh, where no one understood why he was doing what he was doing, because it was such a risky, at the time, endeavor, um, and he didn't care. He just went in, and he was going to do what he had to do, um, and he, you know, it almost destroyed his presidency, actually, had he not gotten the deal with the Chechens, which ultimately was a deal that was amenable to the Russian position, uh, had he not gotten it or had the war dragged on longer, it's possible he wouldn't have been president for very long. Um, but but we're here again. So I don't know if he's crazy. I do think, though, he certainly all of the sort of mainstream Putin watchers, many of them at least, that I follow, were insisting that he, that he just wouldn't do this invasion. It's not going to happen. It was a bluff. And then it wasn't a bluff. And I was sitting there the entire time saying, I don't think it is. Because a dictator is a dictator, and he is going to be tempted by territorial aggrandizement. This started shortly after, or this started, this movement started after, really, uh, Biden had his first face-to-face with, I mean, uh, Putin had his first face-to-face with President Biden. Mm -hmm. We know that Putin is, as a former counterintelligence operative, He's a reader of people. Mm-hmm. He's a student of human beings. Mm-hmm. And he has had the fortune in his case of being in power pretty much for 20 years consistently, with the exception of a couple-year period there when Medvedev was doing it, but Putin was running the show behind the scenes. Um, and he, he, he understands how to read the leaders of great powers and understands how to push and pull them. And also with Biden, who he has known for years and interacted with professionally for years, um, I think that when he sat down with him, he knew there was something off about Biden this time, that Biden was laying over his head. And I think Putin just assumed that now was the time to go for broke because he's old, Putin is. Russia's staring down a demographic disaster unless he can, Putin can do something drastic to restore some Russian people back to Russian control and get them maybe to start having more kids. Uh, so he's looking at this and he's thinking, now is the only time I have. And he was going to go for broke. And now that he's committed, he's not going to stop. I think he's a little little kooky. I think that he's so committed to this 
we might take his, we might want to take his threats of nuclear war, greater escalation more seriously, and escalation against us and the Europeans. Uh, but I, I do think that he is, he is, um, he is behaving somewhat uh, irrationally, uh, and I think he will continue to do so until basically he is forced by circumstances to stop and return to the table. Well, and yeah, let me push that, on that. If he's acting yeah. irrationally, if he is an irrational actor, are our rational attempts to curb and rein him in going to be effect- ineffectual? I, I don't know. You know, on the one hand, I will say that I completely agree with our friend Frank Buckley that it's just great to see the West standing together finally. And so in that way, I kind of tip my hat and I don't want to be too critical. I get that. Um, but at the same time, I can't help but wonder what are the implications, yeah. for instance, of effectively nuking Russia's economy? Yeah, will okay. Will that make Russia more amenable to a deal with us, or is it going to send Putin into such a death spiral that he basically doesn't care anymore, and he's going to go for everything, and he's going to do whatever it takes, even if it means risking a greater conflict with the U.S., a nuclear one even? Uh, What is that going to mean for Russia and China? Will that force Russia to become basically a, a supplicant, a vassal state, to China, how will China? Su- such an interesting question because it leads you know, us into the discussion with Iran and what we're trying to accomplish. Right. The, can we pick up on that on the other side yeah, of the spread? Thank absolutely. you. Absolutely. You bet. Subject of your previous book, subject of your next book. Brandon J. Weikert is our guest. We will be right back. He's happy to take your questions too. 602-508-0960. Here's a little Winton. Welcome back to the Seth Leapson Show. Brandon J. Weikert is our guest. The com is where you can keep up with him unless you uh, read any number of papers or interviews in which he is a sought-after uh, analyst and commentator, and uh, no one respects him uh, more than I do. Brandon, Peter Ducey, uh the Fox stringer for the White House, well, the Fox White House yeah. correspondents, right? Um, he yeah. asked a good question of... Um, he asked a good question of Jen Psaki last week, and it was this. He says, as you are effective – I'll paraphrase, but he said, as, as you are taking on the Russians and as you are criticizing Russian leadership and as you are sanctioning everything within sight of Russia, how is it that you are now working with the Russians to sit on the same right. side of a desk with them to solicit a nuclear deal with Iran? You had invoked the notion of nuclear war uh, or at least the use of nuclear weapons, I should say, perhaps by Putin. He seems to want to – he seems to be, you know, on the line of threatening that here and there. Uh, All the while, maddeningly, we're supposed to be working with him to uh, contain uh, Iran. Uh, Talk to me about all this. I have to tell you, it sounds like uh, a bunch of madmen twiddling their thumbs. Well, it's worse than Madmen. At least Madmen are somewhat entertaining. Okay. Uh, these, these, the Biden administration is just—they're dumb. They're, they're just—they're dumb. They're—they're led—they're led by overgrown children who are overeducated, uh, who have no understanding of the real world, who don't understand what it's like to deal with bloody-minded tyrants, uh, who spend their time, you know, tweeting, you know, virtue signals, you know, hashtag bring, bring back our girls type stuff. I mean, this is this is. They honestly think that the Sergei Lavrov and the Vladimir Putin that they're dealing with in a war situation in Ukraine, uh, that those same two people they're supposedly being friendly and working alongside with in Iran, 
that Iran, that the Vladimir Putin's and Sergei Lavrov's of Russia are going to somehow draw a distinction between the fact that the West is basically supplying heavy weapons to Ukraine during a Russian invasion of Ukraine, and at the same time essentially relying on, it, on Russia to try to help keep Iran in check and at the negotiating table. Um, I can guarantee you that Moscow is looking at this, telling the Americans are the stupidest people we've ever I'm met. Sure. Um, I'm we sure. We are going... We are, I am sure, Lavrov and the boys are behind the scenes with the, with the Iranians, encouraging them to keep pushing, keep pushing, because these idiots in Washington will give you whatever they want, with the ultimate objective being that the United States loses its main access uh, to the Middle East. Mm-hmm. The reason I say that is because as we appear to be conceding the Middle East to a nuclear-arming Iran uh, that is backed by Russia and China, Israel and the Sunni Arab states, notably Saudi Arabia, have to start making new calculations. Right. This is why, by the way, Israel was not as forceful in standing up alongside Ukraine. It's not because they hate Ukraine or because they, they're, they're betraying America. It's because America does not have Israel's back against Iran, and Iran is getting stronger by the day. So Israel has to look to Iran's allies. They have to find great power friends, in this case Russia and or China, to, ba- to basically restrain Iran because the Americans are bugging out, and therefore they have to play nice with Russia. So the Iron Dome or that or doing something like standing up to Russia uh, on Ukraine is not going to help Israel in their situation with Iran. Same thing with Saudi Arabia. It's it hugely embarrassing. I think it was Blinken went to the Saudi Crown Prince, Mohammed bin Salman, and he asked and said, hey, we need you to, to pump more oil to reduce the global price of energy so that the Russians aren't getting this huge payday uh, from the war in Ukraine. And MBS, Saudi Arabia, is, you know, one of our oldest allies in the region, basically said, ah, no thanks, but no thanks. Yeah. Why do you think that is? Well, partly it's because Biden and his team spent the last three years going after MBS personally for all these human rights violations, as if a Saudi leader doesn't have blood. Yeah, right, yeah. And you know, it's just insane. And then at the same time, at the same time, They've been handing the region off to Iran, a country that is not only a religious enemy of the Saudi regime, but a country that the Saudi leader, MBS, when he was the defense minister for Saudi Arabia in 2015, went into what many call an illegal war against in Yemen, uh, which I think he needed to do, uh, to destroy Iranian assets there. That war is still going on. It's actually the bloodiest civil war in the world. It's bloodier than the Syrian civil war. Uh, and, and it's going on because that's how scared the Saudis were of Iranian power projection. And now the Biden administration is handing off the region, with the help of the Russians, go figure, uh, to the Iranians. And the Saudis are having to make new calculations, just like the Israelis are. And as that's going on, by the way... The only one Russia, who isn't making a new calculation is the United States, about a country well, that opens up its parliament chanting death to it. I, well, it's not the United States, it's the Democratic Party. Let's okay. be real. And, and Fair I, I talk about this, Fair as enough. you know, in my forthcoming yep. book. Yep. I get into that, how Jimmy Carter, Barack Obama, now Joe Biden, there's a straight line of appeasement with Islamists, particularly in Iran, yep. that go back to Carter, go all the way to Biden. Uh, and so the only ones who are benefiting from this really are the Russians and the Chinese, but specifically in this case the Russians. The same Russians we're fighting in Ukraine are in the room with us, supposedly on our side, helping to contain Iran, when in reality, they're pushing Iran to be as crazy and nutty and distracting to the Americans as possible because, A, they don't want the Americans focused on Ukraine, and, B, they think the Americans are going to hand the region off to Iran, which is basically a proxy 
for Russian power. And just like that, Russians will now have control or the dominant position in an energy-rich region like the Middle East with the two other major powers, Israel and Saudi Arabia, they think, having to kiss the ring of Russia because they, they can't do it with America anymore. And this is what we're setting up for, complete geopolitical catastrophe. You know, it's a, it's an odd thing. It makes one want to rethink a little bit and put in a good word for the real politique of uh, of Richard Nixon once in a while. Yes. At, least, at least he understood great superpower concerns, right? Remember the Yom more Kippur War? Yeah. Huh? More than any president ever had. More than any president yeah, he, he understood yeah. it more than any president yeah. ever did. Yeah, I was just thinking the Yom Kippur War was instructive. He basically yeah. emptied the defense cupboards to send uh, armaments to Israel. I think Israel wouldn't have survived without it. And right. you just wonder, is, do we still have that ethic, ethos, and ability to do that with Ukraine? And it doesn't seem like we do, at least. Not, not, with, our, not no. with our current political. Not with our current, right. No. Yeah, yeah, no. yeah. It's it's not a good place to be. All right. Well, Brandon, you uh, you did a couple appearances with us last week. You've been generous with your time, as always. Well, I may yeah, I may just keep you in my back pocket for uh, later in the week well, as well. Well, let me know. I will. Let me know. I will. I appreciate it and you very, very much. Thank you, sir. By the way, when is uh, – give me an update on your new Iran. Give the audience an update on your new book that deals with Iran. Uh, it is – I am still waiting for the uh, cover art from the, my publisher. Um, it should be – it's set for the fall of this year. Great. Close to the election. Great. Fantastic. And time for Republican candidates to use – as a foreign Hopefully. policy and defense policy guide. Yes. Uh, inshallah. As inshallah, as say. they say. <laughs> Brandon J. Weicker, Godspeed, as we say as well. Thank you. Thank you, sir. We'll talk to you soon. Brace yourselves, folks, uh, if we are indeed uh, showing a little bit of pride and a little bit of happiness. Maybe we should be showing a little bit more with the Ukrainians standing up the way they have thus far. Brace yourself, as Brandon said, and it sounds right to me. This isn't going to last forever, not with some dramatic change, not with some dramatic change. And I don't see how it's going to be coming from anything the United States does, not right now. By the way, I just... Uh, you know, I, I just haven't spent enough time, and, and I don't know that it's appropriate to do so today. I'm happy to do so if you want to, but I haven't ha spent enough time uh, analyzing uh, tomorrow's and the import and impact of tomorrow's State of the Union address. I spent a lot of time talking about one of the responses to it, but not uh, what Joe Biden will say yesterday. He is furiously uh, working on obviously mitigating uh, the damage that is the fallout from our policy with Russia, as well as obviously the damage of the fallout from COVID mitigation. There was a gosh, how many? How long is this? It was awfully long. It was yeah, an eternity, a minute and six, <laughs> a minute six seconds. A video going around today over at uh, at the ellipse at the White House. Joe Biden walking, probably just uh, getting some air or something. But taking a long walk on the on the on the White House lawn uh, back to the White House uh, wearing a mask all alone, by the way, all alone. So not even with someone who uh, might be, um, you know, compromised or at some 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 kind of threat. 
And uh, Brian Kilmeade says, does anyone brief him on his own science? Uh, the CDC has now changed all this, and uh, no question he will be probably bragging – well, no question probably. There is no question he will be bragging about it tomorrow night as uh, more and more states, uh, as the cascade has been taking place over the last two weeks and culminated today with New York. I don't think he'll get California or D, uh, California in time, but he got New York – to uh, relax the mask mandates, which is, again, a very ironic thing. I mean, we are thrown into such confusion here. I don't know why you would want to get rid of something that is an emblem of your patriotism, unless, of course, you know, you still don't think America is worth being patriotic about. The left has so many confusions. To think and not think, it's double think, as George Orwell said, to think and not think, to speak and not speak, and to contradict that which has already been contradicted. That is the essence of the world we live in. I've called it the crisis industrial complex. George Orwell has called it 1984. Whatever you want to call it, it seems those are the times increasingly we are living in. Who will rid us of this meddlesome priest? And I don't mean one man. I mean about a dark ideology that has confused and suffused our politics and our culture. Well, the best we can do is provide the antidote that we can as we can, and we do it here as we as we uh, meet every day. All right, folks, 602 I know a bunch of you wanted to call in on a bunch of stuff, and I wanted to give Brandon his space. We will be right back. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.